Listener supported. WNYC Studios. The positioning of being kind of at the edge of the room looking in, that's the position of a journalist, right? Seneca said that luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. Whether that luck takes a few days or even a lifetime is the unknown. I'm Helga Davis, creator and co-host of Radiolab, Jad Abumrad might seem lucky, but as he sat down to speak with me, coffee in hand and family not too far off in the distance, we talked about the evolution of his show and how he works with doubt. This is my conversation with Jad Abumrad. So I start every interview these days. <laughs> but, but, what a joy to be able, like, to be there, to yell at them, to be quiet, <laughs> no? Like, isn't there something in there, too? Yeah, it's a mixed, if it were a burrito, it's, well, no. It's an irritation wrapped in, in gratitude and joy, you know? There we go. There you go. Yeah. No, it's good. It's good. I actually really, I mean, it's funny. I love working where, like, they're near. As long as they're just oh. not yelling, then that's the oh. only, yeah. That's a thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is it about having them near that, that makes the experience something else, more enjoyable, that makes it? Yeah, you know, I mean, Helga, it's because I work so, such weird hours, you know, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. and all the time. It gives me some semblance of actually having that myth, that, that sort of mythical work-life balance to be able to work and then just like fall out of the studio and go read them a story and then come back. Um, otherwise it would just be too hard. I mean, it was hard for many years when I was just at the station, uh, you yeah. know, that then you really do feel cut off. But now uh, that I have a little studio in the house and it's literally 12 feet from their bedrooms. It's kind of, it's kind of beautiful. I love it. Yeah. I, I think, I think about all of my friends, too, who are musicians, who have been on the road, you know, for the 20 years that I've known them. Mm -hmm. And they would come home and their kids were a foot taller or some several inches taller, or they learned new words or they were walking or they they were doing something that they had missed. And now that they're home, I'm the one who can tell that the kids are big because I'm coming from the outside. Now they're so close to them and they're so involved in every aspect and still trying to work in the ways that they can um, that they don't see. They don't have that distance anymore. And so it's been such a, a beautiful thing to witness how normal it has become mm. for folks to be with their kids and to see them through all the stages and all the phases and all the yelling and right. Oh my God. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, I relate to that. Cause you know, I mean, it's been the silver lining of the pandemic really. I mean, mm. we're very fortunate in that no one close to us has gotten very sick. But, you know, it, being trapped in the house with the kids and with, with my wife, Carla, it's it's really, uh, I almost feel like I, I never knew my kids until this pandemic, you know? I mean, I, I know them, of course, but I know their rhythms now. I know that my oldest is super talkative in the morning and kind of pensive mm-hmm. at night. I know that the little guy wakes up like like he's shot out of a cannon and then he kind of gets real pensive around three. So, like, they ha- they have their different rhythms and I feel very much in tune with that so like you know them in a different way now and uh that does feel like a gift in a way the the one gift in all of this Mm -hmm. when you were growing up were you around both of your parents all the time or did they did they have careers and things that took them away from you I was kind of in the mix but playing off by myself is they both were scientists my earliest memories are just kind of like my daycare was their labs and so 
my earliest memories are just kind of just sitting there for hours. It felt like days uh, while they finished their experiments. Where I went to school in Nashville, across the street was uh, the building where my mother worked, and then sort of two or three blocks down was where my dad worked. And so I would walk to her office, and I would sit there, and she and you know she would be doing experiments, and I would play with her lab rats. You know, they were like my, my pets, and. You know, I bought them in my pockets and stuff. And then mm-hmm. many years later, I found out that those rats probably like were euthanized the next day, <laughs> so, which was, that was a bad Do day. Do you know what happened to your friends? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I didn't know that at the time. And so I was always kind of, I was always around them, but they were always so deep in their work. Uh, mm. And, uh, and I never really knew or was curious to know what, they did exactly until I started radio lab many years later. And then I started to be, mm-hmm. Oh wow. Okay. Science. What, hmm, what were they doing exactly? Mm-hmm. What was that protein you were looking at? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so that, that was my childhood, you know, was, was, was just being there. And then, you know, the other place I would get stuck for hours was in a practice room because, uh, there was my mother's lab, which was across the street from where I went to school. And then about, a 10 minute walk from there was the Blair School of Music in Nashville where I took piano lessons. Mm-hmm. And that was the other place where if, I, if they couldn't take care of me, they would just send me to the practice room. So I spent, God, I spent, there were times when they, I would be six hours in that practice room just playing yeah. scales and doing stuff. So that was, my, that was my upbringing, yeah. But it sounds like that was an okay thing for who you were and if I can say are as a person. Oh, most definitely. That, right? Yeah, that, most that definitely. you could have that time. Yeah, I know. I'm a, what's the word? A extreme introvert. Like maybe an extreme but slightly noisy introvert that likes people. Uh, one of those kinds. But, you know, I, w- I was always happy to spend uh, hours in a practice room. It felt mm-hmm. very um, peaceful to me. Mm-hmm. And, and even now telling stories on the radio or in podcast it, it it suits me in a way because so often you're by yourself in a room uh sometimes in an airless booth and you're speaking to a person but they weren't right in front of you you know like mm-hmm. the, that sort of social energy was kind of kept at a remove which for me is perfect that's exactly how i like to operate hmm. i'm always interested in these very beginnings of people because I think a lot of times someone might look at you and say, yeah, but he does Radiolab, as if that, that were a destination and not an evolution of many, many, many things. And that I think we often get discouraged. It's like, well, I don't have a Radiolab. So how do I find something or do something that is so meaningful to me or to someone else? And that part of what I feel these conversations do is unpack the mystery of that a little bit so that we see already in the beginning that you had, you had radio lab tendencies. (laughs) You had an ability to be on your own, to love to practice, to be okay by yourself, but with people. Yeah, and and I love Helga. I love that you called it an evolution because I sometimes kind of freeze up when people ask like, "How did Radiolab happen?" Or yeah, and there was never a like one pager vision statement for it. It it, it literally back in two thousand and two, after years of tr- of dabbling in in radio, somewhat unsuccessfully. I got a lucky break and I was suddenly making a show and it was a giant swath of time on the AM signal on Sunday nights. Where were you? Well, I was, I was at WNYC, right? I wasn't even an employee at that point. I was, I, I was still in that stage where you're, when you start to tell radio stories, you're like, okay, what, how should I speak in the mic? You know, should I, should I talk like this, like a news reporter? No, that doesn't work. Or should I kind of talk like Ira Glass and like be kind of like, you know, like I was still in that stage of just searching to like, what is my voice and how do I work with tape? You know, what kind of music do I want to use in my stories? What stories are mine versus someone else's? I was like really early stages in that. And I got this opportunity probably too, too early in my career, which was 
hey, we have this big chunk of time on the uh, on the AM at Sunday nights. Just play documentaries. That's that was the only mandate. So I just remember, you know, I was suddenly faced with three hours a week, and I had to fill it, and yeah. and I had to like host. I don't know what that means. Like, how do you host something? Like, do you have to be like a host? You know, like <laughs> these days, I feel like there are more models for like what people can do when they host stuff. But then there was just like, I don't know. I was like, do I have to be like quote delightful? Like, what what does that mean? And so I had to figure all that out. And um, every week, I just kind of felt like I was making it up, and there was never like one idea. And then suddenly, somewhere along the way, it started to sound like a thing, you know. And then Robert came along, Robert Krolwich, and he and I collaborated, and then it evolved well, a bit more. How did you meet him? Uh, you know, how I met him was that I was making Radiolab. It maybe was a year or so into the process of it. The station wasn't entirely sure it was worth doing. <laughs> it yeah. took them a long time to get to that place. How about that? That right there. Yeah, they were. They they kept me in a kind of limbo for a long time. And I don't, I don't say this with any judgment. Mm -hmm. I actually feel like if I were in their position listening to me back then, I'd be like, I don't know, man, maybe, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So I was in that state. And um, the way that I sort of made myself useful to the station was I would make promos for them. Yeah. So once upon a time, they asked me to make a bunch of promos with um, a series of people reading a 30 second spot. These are people who had been longtime supporters of the station. And it was it was a list of people like Andre Gregory, you know, people I kind of recognized who was a supporter of the station. And then Robert Kroll, which was on that list. And so I remember just going into his office one day. We'd made an appointment. I handed him this little 30 second script. And I am a proud supporter of WNYC, yada, yada, yada. And he very typical to to, to, he just like basically was like, no, I'm not going to read this. <laughs> this is stupid. <laughs> and then he rewrote it on the spot and, and made uh -huh. it just wrote this bonkers 30 second thing about oil tycoons and alien cults. And I don't even remember what it was, but I was just like, whoa, who are you? Mm -hmm. And um, of course, I kind of recognized him, but I didn't really know his work. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was so, I would like, yeah. Going back, I was like, God, I was so naive. But uh, we started talking and we realized we had a lot of stuff in common. You know, we both went to Oberlin. Um, we both had done a stint at WBAI radio. Um, he had done public radio for a long time. He was actually part of the cohort that invented public radio. Wow. And, uh, and I was doing public radio. So he's like, hey, let's have lunch. So we had lunch and... Um, we just kept having lunch, you know, just like I, once every couple of weeks, we'd meet for lunch. Meanwhile, I was making this thing called Radio Lab, And then um, I think it, somewhere along the way, he heard it and he was like, okay, this isn't bad. And uh, we started doing these small experiments, um, you know, just like we'd meet early hours when there was studio time. Because um, I, I think you've, you were, you've been around for a long time at WNYC, right, Helga? Since 2008. Okay, so got it. So I think we were in the new, we were in the new building by then, right? No, I, when I came to New York Public Radio, we were still in the municipal building okay, on so Chambers Street. So you remember like how precious studio time was. There was only yeah. a few studios and everybody yeah. fought like gladiators for it. So he and I would meet like at six in the morning because that was the only time available. And we would do like little improvisations. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, I remember there was one in particular where I had some tape of a scientist talking about memory. It was a really interesting idea, but there was a lot of jargon and I couldn't figure out how to like cut through it. I played it for him. He improvised around it and was started spinning a tale about a rabbit in a garden or some kind of fantastical thing. And I remember taking that tape, cutting in the scientist and then sound designing a little garden for the rabbit. And I, I made some music and I put that in. And I remember hearing it later and it was just five minutes. And I thought, oh, that's, that's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. I want to do more of that. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, that became the tiny little nugget of what would evolve into Radiolab. But that was already like three years in, you know, so I, I didn't even really have like a vibe until that moment. So, you know, it was a really slow evolution is, is the short of it. But talk about the fact that it just it takes time mm-hmm. and that you have to be given time and space to make a thing that's good or to make a thing that that is yours and that isn't a copy of something else. Yeah, I feel like I'm a walking example of that, Helga. You know, like I look back at the the journey I took and then I transpose it on to today. And I think like if I came in today mm-hmm. with this half-baked, unformed idea of a show, nobody would say yes to it. And they shouldn't, you know what I mean? But because I wandered into the world at that particular time when public radio was established, but it was tiptoeing its way towards this explosion of podcasting, I lived in this world of benign neglect where mm. nobody paid attention and it was actually for the best. You know what I mean? And I, I was given the gift of four, five years to slowly figure out all the things, all of the things. And, yeah. to, and not just to, to figure it out, but to grow up. I had to grow up a little bit. Say something about that. Grow up from, from being what? I guess I was in my late 20s. Mid, mm-hmm. mid to late 20s when I started Radiolab. And I realized what I'm about to say could sound like one of those things old men say about young people. <laughs> but but I, I just don't think you know anything when you're 25, you know? I just don't think you know, you know, you think you do. You think mm-hmm. you're, you're, you've got it all figured out. I certainly did. But just like, I didn't know how to do journalism, you know, like basics, mm-hmm. like real basics. And you can't just wander into a journalistic institution and be given a show without knowing how to do journalism. So I had to learn that on the job. I still feel like I'm learning that literally every Mm -hmm. day. And I'm 20 years in at this point. So I had to learn how to do that. I had to learn how to be confident and self-assured in front of this evil thing right here. Yeah, I mean, I think some people get that easy, but it took me a long time. You know, it's funny. I listened to my, my early self on tape I, I sound like four semitones higher <laughs> and so and it's like so i had to wait for my literally for my voice to drop yeah. like it's just a, i just had to grow up you know and to drop into your own body yeah you go yeah too i remember when i first came to the station i also had this idea of what a host was supposed to sound like i was doing overnight music mm. and I had been given the the mandate to play music from the perspective of a cool New York artist and talk about it. And I was listening to the the voices around me that definitely had a sound and that pronounced things in a very particular way, and, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. and I understood that to be the thing to aspire to. Yeah. And so I tried that. And then my friends who would listen would say to me, you know, you played some really interesting things, but who are you Mm. when you're talking? And who is it that you think you're talking to? Because you're not talking to us anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And and that was devastating. Mm. And I remember running into Sarah Fishko and saying to her, I I think I sound really terrible. And she said, oh, I was horrible for the first five years of my career. You'll get it. But, you know, getting it means that somebody's going to continue to give you the chance to get it and continue to give you the the opportunity to get better. Yeah. Same. I relate completely. Sarah Fishko is so right, uh, as she is about most things. I mean, the... It's a a funny thing. Like, I I think about this sometimes. Like, I think we all have that existential, like, who am I question. And for most of us, it kind of lives as a background hum. Mm -hmm. It's just there, but there are days when you don't have to pay attention to it. The thing about the microphone is it just puts it right in front of your face. Like, you suddenly have to answer the question, like, every time you speak. And it's a, I found that really hard. 
You know, I, I remember distinctly those, those first few years, it would take me hours to track the show, hours. Because what I would do is I'd, I'd speak a line that I had written for myself, and then I would rewind, hit play, and I, the voice coming out of the speaker would sound like a bad imitation of everyone from Ira Glass to like <laughs> Joe Frank to uh, like some, you know, news reporter to, yeah. I was just like, who the F are you? <laughs> like, where yeah. is you in there? And it, it took me, I remember like that process was very painful because uh, I just wanted to sound like a normal dude. You know, I just wanted to sound like, mm -hmm. oh, I recognize that guy. It's so weird that it took me years before I could recognize myself, you know? And how important it is because you can't really do anything until you do, right? Yeah. Until you yeah. know that. Yeah. And people can be harsh, but that's <laughs> good. It's that. all, it's all, that's all sort of like adolescent uh, growth, you know, and I, mm -hmm. I look back on it and I can now smile about it rather than tear up. <laughs> <laughs> you grew up in Tennessee. Yes. And what, what was that like? So you're second generation, your family from Lebanon. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think it meant? Well, two things. What what was that experience like for you? Mm -hmm. And then what do you think the, the hope was for you and for your parents, for you to be in that state and for them to be doing the work that they were doing and, and being American? Man, Helga, I've been thinking a lot about this recently. I mean, growing up as this sort of scrawny Arab kid in this southern baptist universe during gulf war number one it was a little weird you know it wasn't terrible but i never kind of felt like i was a part of the tennessee dominant thing so i, I kind of felt a little awkward and out on the margins of it my dad sort of put it to me really well once uh he was like southern hospitality is real people are really nice in the south um they will invite you into their home but they'll keep you in the vestibule. So yeah. it, it, it kind of felt like that, like you're sort of one step apart of a thing, but you'll never be all the way. And, uh, you know, as I look back on it, I kind of appreciate what that experience was. I mean, I never had it really badly, so I, I feel like it's even a privilege to say this, right? But um, the positioning of being kind of at the, uh, at the edge of the room, looking in, that's the position of a journalist, right? in a very different sort of immigrant sense, it's a little bit that double consciousness idea, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're looking at yourself and you're looking at others, but you're also looking at the way that they see you and you're always quite aware of that. And that is a very useful thing mm -hmm. when you're doing what we do, right? Mm -hmm. You're never actually a part of anything. You're walking into a room that's not your room. You're pointing a mic at somebody, you're asking them a question and then you retreat. And that feels very natural to me. And I'm, I was very grateful when I met the microphone, when I met like the, the, I, the process of interviewing, because it gives you permission to engage. When I, for a long time as a, as a growing up, I didn't feel I had that permission. I always kind of felt like I had to just sort of be still and, and not noisy. It was, it was awkward, um, but I, I appreciate it now in retrospect. But, you know, it's funny to, to your question about, like, what was it like for my parents to be doing that work? I don't know that I ever fully understood that distance that they had traveled. You know, I, I lived in Lebanon for a couple of years when I was young and I'd gone back a million times. Do you remember being there when you were young? Bits and pieces, you okay. know. I remember fragments, you know, mm -hmm. uh, like, uh, but uh, I went back and my dad told me a story of his dad. You know, so, I mean, like, first of all, I went back to his village and his village, it's like one of those, it's like a tiny little postcard, little village at this, on the side of the mountain. Half the village has my last name. <laughs> I met somebody with my exact first and last name. And there was something about standing in that village and realizing, oh, dang, you came from here mm. and you traveled from here down the mountain to, to America. Like it, it, you say that as a sentence, but then you stand in that place and it just takes on a whole nother character. Like, wow, that's a journey. 
you traveled space and time to get to this, the life that seems so ordinary to me right now. And I think he was the first person in this village of about 5,000 people to go to college. And then I thought, well, how did you make it out? You know, he started telling me about his dad when his dad was 10. We're, we're talking like World War One era. He would march 50 miles carrying olive oil and various things that he would sell to the German army in exchange for cereals and grains, and then they'd come back. He and his family would do this once a week. And on one of these journeys, his mom has a heart attack and dies. Uh, this would be my dad's grandmother. Uh, and so they buried her on the side of the road and just kept marching. And he, he was like, that's what makes, it, that's what allowed me to leave, right? And then he subsequently worked like five jobs at once just to get my dad the money to go to AUB and then to go to America. And it's like crazy to think like, wow, that the only reason I'm sitting here talking to you is because a little boy had to bury his mother on the side of there. It's just wild. Like yeah. there's a like the distance that that generation had to travel. Yeah. I can't even like actually hold it in my head. It's kind of amazing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like when they were working as scientists in Nashville, it felt like the most ordinary thing to me at that time, but that was a big deal. It was a really big deal. Do you feel that, that he tried to protect you from that story for as long as he could in, 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 in giving you the advantages that he was able to give you and education and home and just not having certain concerns, really? Yeah, and I also think it was a little bit um, of protection as well. Like um, the place where they came from, where I come from, just imploded uh, the way, the pretty much the moment they landed in America. So they left right as the Civil War was becoming just out of control. And then it proceeded for the next 17 years to just be one nightmare after another. And so. I mean, my, my, I have vivid memories like in 1983 when there was that famous bombing of the Marine barracks in Beirut of just watching them watch the TV. Mm. And it was just like, just like heartbreak. Like I could see it in their faces. And I, I just think they wanted to pretend that that place didn't exist for a long time, you know? So if they were protecting me from anything, it was just from all that insanity and, um, and America really was like a better life for them. For Carnegie Hall is one of the most famous concert venues in the world. The first time I walked on the stage, I felt like my feet were moving, but they were not touching the floor. Join us for If This Hall Could Talk, a new podcast that explores the history of this iconic landmark through the unique items in its archives. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and together we'll explore how the past shaped the culture we live in today. Listen to If This Hall Could Talk wherever you get podcasts. Me. And so you're this Arab kid in this school. Does that even mean anything to anybody that, that you went to school with? Well, at that time, it meant something very specific. These days, it's, it's such a different, there's such a different appreciation, right? What did um, it mean then? What it meant then was like, you're from the place that invented terrorism. Right. You know, obviously that is not true. You know, I mean, like terrorism existed back in the 1600s, but the idea that somebody would drive a truck into a building and blow it up. I mean, that was the first suicide bombing in modern history, right? And people couldn't wrap their heads around it. And I was from that place. So Lebanon for years, that's what Lebanon meant to people. It's the place where that happened and that happens and keeps happening. It's the place where the PLO does horrendous things to, you know, poor Jewish settlers in, in Israel. Like that was the, that was the narrative. And so it was something very specific. These days, I think, I think people have such a, so much more of a sophisticated sense of the world and so much more appreciation for the complexities of these political situations. But at that point, no. So... That's what it meant. And then what about you with your kids? How do, how do you explain the place that you, they, come from and are a part of? 
Well, my kids, my kids are like this incredible mix, right? So they're, they're half Lebanese, quarter Filipino, quarter Indian, right? So they're this like, they're like these mutts and they love that. And they go to a school which asks them to interview their grandparents every year and to get their family histories and to then present that to their other kids. And so there's just like a celebration of uh, mixed upness and trying to sort of like isolate and, 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 and storytell the different aspects of your identity. It's so funny to see the way that they're educated and the way that it's so normal to them, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what we try to do with them is, is to um, differentiate and say, okay, like one of your grandpas was Lebanese and here's what that meant and tell him stories about almost like trying to preserve certain, you know, cause it's all so clumped together now uh, in their lives. Um, whereas like, I feel like my generation, maybe this particular to the South, I don't know, like there was a, the, there were identities were hidden a little bit in, in, made invisible. These days, it's a different problem. Everything kind of is just thrown together, you know, and and so now we try and like like kind of like say, okay, this is this is what your Indian grandfather went through. This is what your Lebanese grandfather went through. Uh, this is what your uh, Filipina grandmother went through, and we try to tell them like very specific stories. Um, but I would love to take them to Lebanon, and and I and it it breaks my heart a little bit that that they don't speak Arabic. Mm. Um, I feel like there's something ending in that, mm. but they certainly could learn it, I guess. Mm-hmm. So you start putting this, the pieces of this puzzle together that we now call Radio Lab. You have the time that it took to make it into something that felt like and feels like it belongs to you, that it's your voice, that you, that you, you have your partner in crime, in in Robert, and then it really becomes a thing. Do you feel that you were ready for that? Because I think part of what happens too is that people say, I, I want this thing. And, and then when I have this thing, I'll know and have proof that what I've been doing was the right thing. I realize for myself, there are things that I get that I'm completely not ready for. I really thought I was ready for the success of this or that thing. And then I get this grant and I get the first check from the grant and I can't go to the bank and put it in Mm. because it it doesn't feel real. Mm -hmm. Or there's a disconnect in my brain and in my body that the person I think I am also has, can, do, is capable of, deserves this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Same. That wasn't the answer I expected. <laughs> no, completely the same. Completely the same. I mean, where my mind goes immediately when you ask that question is, I think about, a, I think about Minnesota, the Fitzgerald Theater. So... I mean, the, the, the success of Radiolab, as much as it was a slow evolution, there was something that happened around like 2010, 2011. People just like started paying attention to it. Um, and so we were like that one of those like overnight successes that had taken 10 years kind of a thing. <laughs> right. um, and uh, we were offered the chance to perform live at the Fitzgerald Theater. We had done some like minor things like presentation kind of stuff. Uh, it, it, you know, at like the Apple store in New York City or something like that. We had done some of that. But like the Fitzgerald Theater, that's like where that... Uh, and I remember like the, the week or two before we were going to do it, I went and watched Garrison Keillor do his thing at the Fitzgerald Theater, which is where he broadcast for years. And I was like, oh, no, I can't. I can't. No, 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 I can't do that. Like just you just get on the stage and then people like all these people watch you. Mm-hmm. I just, that that's insane. No, no. Mm-hmm. And I remember the the hours before we had to perform, I literally was in a fetal position under the desk, like as an introvert, yeah. to step onto a stage and just be the center of that kind of attention. Oh my God. I just, I can still feel my stomach kind of turn just yeah. th- th- thinking back on that. 
And so like, I wasn't ready for that. You know, I was not ready for the idea that you aren't just a person in front of a computer cutting tape and making these little story compositions, but that you're actually having to be a public person and to be a public person without a safety net. I was not ready for that. But then the amazing thing is I didn't die. You know, (laughs) like we, we, we did the performance and it was okay. I mean, I don't know if it was great, but it was fine, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I maybe even kind of liked it. Mm-hmm. And then we ended up going on four tours after that. Wow. And if I, the person who started the show, if if he could have known that that would be what he would end up doing, it, there would he wouldn't have believed it. Yeah. You know, there's no way that, that Jad would have thought that, that that other Jad in the future would be on a stage. No freaking way. So there are aspects like that, that like you're just doing the work and then suddenly the work drives you into a situation that just you're not prepared for. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has happened to me many, many times at Radio Lab. Um, you know, first it was touring and then it was like this slightly more boring but more consequential question of like, how do you run a team? Like, how do you, because now Radio Lab is so much bigger than me. It's just so many talented people, um, you know, two new hosts, uh, a, an executive editor who has been, who makes most of the decisions at this point, you know, Lulu Latif, Soren, uh, Susie, all the folks at Radio Lab, uh, who I collaborate with. I mean, it is such a bigger uh, endeavor than me at this point. And also on for those offshoot projects, you know, yeah. I collaborate very deeply with Shima Oliai on those. And I've learned, like, what does a team need of me and how do I do that what do i do when i think they should do a but they really don't want to do a they want to do b how do i sort of like work with that mm-hmm. like that's been a whole other evolution and, and i have i was not prepared at all for that you know groups are hard especially yeah. these days <laughs> groups are really hard <laughs> and uh i just I had to learn it's like a whole language you learn of like how to be a not just a a bedroom artist but like an actual leader Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's just so many stops along the way where I feel like I, I wasn't ready. And then I just somehow got myself ready, you know? And then after you won the MacArthur, did you feel ready for that? For the attention? What did that even mean that, that you'd won that? Oh, that one took a while to settle in, you know, it's interesting. Like I think back on that now, at first it was a little trippy. It was weird you're kind of singled out in a way that is, was awkward. I mean, it was an amazing honor. But now that I look back on it, I, I think that was kind of a moment where I could kind of quiet one, one of those internal voices. Mm. You know, it did mean something. It did do a lot for me. The money, not as much because they divide it up in a certain way and it gets taxed to hell. But <laughs> I, I was able to build, build a studio uh, in my home. So that was huge. You know, we started by talking about my kids and being close to my kids, and I was able to finally do that. But then there, it was a moment where I thought, I don't have to, like in those moments where you really, I mean, I I am filled with doubt all the time. And it's something I can say back to the doubting voices. Well, okay, at least I got that thing. But it's, it's such a piece of information that you, you, because that's what people say, you, also are full of doubt. I mean, it's, it's a thing that you work with. I, was, I just yeah. finished reading again um, James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time. And one of the things that he talks about is being able to use one's anger, one's, those things to, to propel you mm. into the work that you must be doing, that you yeah. that you feel is your calling to do, um, and that you not get defeated by that, by whatever those feelings are. And I think it's such an important piece, but it also means being in community. I think with with people who know who you are. Who, who see the work that you're trying to do or the place that you're trying to get to and that they, they can lift you up in, from that place as well. 
um, and that that then those things become information. So it's like, what's really at work here? I doubt this. Why? I've done this show this many times. I've I've performed this piece of music. I've done this X number of times. Why am I afraid today? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a. Uh, you mentioned James Baldwin. It's like the the fact that he could take that visceral anger and wrap it in such Ooh. eloquent poetry, you know. Ooh. And you're just like, wow, okay. Ooh. There's something transformative in that. It's like something to aspire to. I mean, you know, he, he, the, for me, that when I say I'm filled with doubt, I think it's this. It's given me a certain kind of like sensibility, and for better or worse, like I find when someone presents you with a truth that is resolute and simple, I just don't trust it. You know what I mean? And there are certain truths that are true and simple. And so I'm not discounting that, but there's some way in which for me, and maybe it is because I grew up as that awkward Arab kid where you're kind of always in between, right? You're in between cultures. Whenever I find a truth that feels too simple, too partisan, too flat, I just don't trust it. It feels by definition, not true to me. You know, and so I, the doubt for me becomes a pointing arrow. Like if I don't see that reflected in the world I'm investigating, I become a skeptic in that Mm -hmm. moment. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel like the stories I'm constantly chasing are stories of people who are kind of stranded in between truths, you know, Mm -hmm. whose instincts are pulling them in different directions. Um, Because that makes sense to me. That emotionally computes for me. So I guess that's how I use the doubt. Mm-hmm. Uh, I use it as I, I look for it in everything I everything I do professionally. One of the other things that Baldwin said, and I, I this one I wrote down so I could get it exactly right because I I I want to ask you something about it. He says the purpose of art is to lay bare the questions hidden by answers, mm. and you're God, already pointing at that right with with what you were just speaking about. And so it feels to me like Radiolab and so many of the other things, the, the offshoots and things that you, you're, you're looking beyond these simple truths at much more complex questions. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope so. I, I hope so. It's funny. It's, it, it's a wind that sometimes feels to be like the winds feel to be blowing in the opposite direction sometimes these mm-hmm. days um, towards towards simple, loud truths. And, and I, I, I do feel completely still dedicated to that, I, that idea that the best work we can do right now is to somehow explore those areas where you see two truths in conflict. And they both feel true, but mutually exclusive in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, being being a person, being a, a journalist or a storyteller that can hold both and see both and examine both humanities, realities as three-dimensional, uh, that feels like the work to me right now. That feels like the work. And sometimes that is about, as he beautifully puts, forgetting the answers in yeah. some sense, that isn't our job. Even though I do think we have to look for answers because you never get to the good questions without looking for the answers. Yeah. But ultimately, if all you find is the answer, that just, that feels like too simple. That mm-hmm. feels like we're shirking off our ethical responsibility in some way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I subscribe to that beautiful sentence wholeheartedly. You know, it is ultimately about investigating the complexities behind seemingly simple answers that actually reveal a question that is not simple. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the work. It's, it's interesting. You know, one of the things that happens every time I sit here to do this work, the, the windows in my living room face the back of the building on the next block. And that building houses, um, a homeless shelter. Mm. And sometimes the sounds that come from there just take my breath away. Mm. Um, 
sometimes there are people who are dreaming and they have they have nightmares wow um but very often people are fighting over things that many of us and i would even venture to say most of us wouldn't think were things to fight about yeah so the other day uh someone had taken all the belongings of one of the residents and put them in a bag and put that bag somewhere for him to pick up and in that bag was a thing and a last thing of someone who meant something to him and that it couldn't be dropped or folded or banged around mm. and the idea of losing it sent him into a rage and the thing that he kept repeating was you'd have to have respect for my things you have to have respect you have to have respect for me you have to have respect and you know it it's 6:30 or 7 o'clock in the morning wow wow and and that's where his day is beginning yeah yeah and wow. so there's the 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 impulse of some of the other neighbors to say we're going to call 311 they're making too much noise we're trying to work we're blah 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 but the idea that the thing that identifies the person that gives him identifies him to a place to a person that is special and important to him and that that thing now may be gone or broken or hmm? it's such a it's such a powerful thing and so yeah. it isn't as simple as we're going to call 311 and complain about this place if mm -hmm. it's not that simple if you are willing also to listen to what's happening around you yeah. like to take that one extra step and to to not be as invested in your own comfort just for a moment so that you can know what's going on around you to get to this other question yeah i think it's really it's a that's an amazing story um that feels like the that feels like the beginning of a of a, of a like a memoir or something that's amazing um the uh the um this is funny i haven't always thought this way but i i feel it very strongly now i do feel like every act of journalism but maybe it's just act of anything it has to begin in empathy you know hmm. um i don't know that, that that's the sum total of what the job is but it has to start there hmm. you know it has to begin with just like huh what's what's it like to be you right now mm -hmm. you know Maybe that's compassion and more than empathy. Uh, yeah, I, I do feel like that's, that's the thing that animates the work more than it ever has. Yeah. Is to, to find the people that you're like, God, I, I really don't, I don't get you. I might even hate you at times, but let me actually put those feelings aside and be like, what is it like actually to be you? Uh, walk me through it. Yeah. Um, that, that feels really important. Yeah. Otherwise, I really appreciate the chance to talk about all this stuff in a way that I never have before. So I'm very grateful. Well, I really appreciate just being able to not only pass your office and look at you and kind of wave. Because remember, I was on one of those Radio Lab episodes. I sang something and I came right. in. I was at a desk and someone said, Hey, don't you sing? And I said, <laughs> And I said, can you come here tomorrow and sing this song? And I said, sure. And they got out one of those old, beautiful ribbon microphones. Yes. And you sounded I amazing on that. sang that song into there. I've never heard the song, though. Jack. Oh, no, you sound incredible. Oh, yeah, really? That was actually for a... Uh... That was actually for an audio walking tour yeah. that we did for Austin. Yeah, that's right. That was... 
You should, I'm going to dig that up and send it to you because I remember be hearing amazing. that and being like, whoa, who I've is that? I've never heard that. And yeah. I, I remember it hadn't, the song hadn't been written. And then I sang it in like two different octaves so we could figure out which one. <laughs> it was a whole thing. But even I had my little stint on Radio Lab. <laughs> so there, people. Thank you, Good. Jed, so much. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. That was my conversation with radio host Jad Abumrad. I'm Helga Davis. If you want more of these conversations, subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and share with a friend. And don't forget to follow me at hel.gadavis on Instagram. Helga, The Armory Conversations is a co-production of WNYC Studios and Park Avenue Armory. The show is produced by Crystal Hawes Dressler with help from Darian Suggs and myself. Our technical producer is Sapir Rosenblatt. Original music by Michelle Endege Ocello and Jason Moran. Special thanks to Alex Ambrose. Avery Willis Hoffman is our executive producer. City and Bloomberg Philanthropies are the Armory's 2021 season sponsors. And now, the coda. So here's what was said. You're a cool New York artist. Come on in, bring some music you love, sit down and talk about it. (laughs) What? And well, so that's what I did. I said yes. I came in, and as I like to describe it, I took my shoes off. I hadn't ever felt so comfortable doing something for the first time. That's how it began. That's how I ended up on the radio. I said yes. We're going to listen to a short piece from my first radio show. (laughs) And I'm so glad, still, to be here. Finding my voice, finding my yes, finding my way. From the majestic Cathedral of St. John the Divine, the following program features highlights from the Songs of the Spirit concert that took place at the Cathedral this past November. I'm Helga Davis. Songs of the Spirit is a concert series that promotes interfaith and intercultural unity through music. As you'll hear, the featured artists, who are from different ethnic and musical backgrounds, often perform together on stage. This concert features Odetta, the singer who the New York Times calls the mother empress of folk and blues, South African megastar Hugh Masekela, and New York-based psychedelic Sufi trans rock singer Hala. And to start the concert, old meets new as the jazz trombonist Craig Harris teams up with the Tibetan monks of the Drepung Losling Monastery. Craig Harris, who we're hearing on stage now, has been on the jazz scene since the mid-70s. He's a trombonist whose interest in music also extends to the worlds of multimedia, performance art, curating, and for this event, he's the Songs of the Spirit music director. The Tibetan monks are renowned for their multiphonic chanting. The monks simultaneously produce three notes, creating a chord. We'll hear them perform with their traditional temple instruments, including cymbals, bells, drums, and longhorn trumpets. Let's turn to the stage at the cathedral and listen to the opening of the concert with Craig Harris and the Tibetan monks. (laughs) 